Well, folks, good morning. Hey, welcome to Grace. If you have your Bibles, uh, grab them at this point and turn with me to the book of Amos. Uh, We've been in a series for a few weeks now in the book of Amos, God's passionate plea to his people. And uh, God continues uh, to give this passionate plea not only to his people of uh, many years ago, but to his people now in the church. How's that? Oh, yeah, good. I don't, have to, I don't have to yell now? Very good. Hopefully they can control that in the back and, and we'll be okay. But uh, for now, I won't yell at you. So I want to begin with a story this morning about uh, a famous house. And uh, this famous house was built by a famous architect uh, by the name of Frank Lloyd Wright. Now, he built this house for um, a a millionaire businessman by the name of Hibbard Johnson. And uh, for short, his name was Hib. And the story goes something like this. Uh, He built this house for him, uh, and yet it had a leaky roof. Now, one evening it was raining particularly hard, and there were uh, puddles that were forming in the house, and it was an inopportune time because the rich man by the name of Johnson, Hib Johnson, he was entertaining some guests, and he was entertaining some particularly distinguished, important guests for dinner, and the roof was leaking, and uh, with every drip that he heard in the background, he became more furious because he had contacted uh, Lloyd Wright before to come and to fix this roof on the 
this immaculate house that he had built him. So his, uh, as the dinner was, was waning on, his, his steam and his anger was continuing to build until uh, the fateful moment when he felt a drip, drip, drip uh, on his bald head and the water was leaking right onto his head. And that was, that was it. And so irate, he called Wright, who lived in Phoenix, Arizona, and he said, Frank, you built this beautiful house for me, and listen, we enjoy it quite a bit. It's, it's a unique, wonderful house, but I've told you before, and I'll tell you once again, that the roof leaks, and right now I'm with some friends, in fact, some very important, distinguished guests, and it's leaking right on top of my bald head. Now the architect, Wright, uh, said, well, Hibbard, why don't you just move your chair?" That's not exactly the uh, answer that I think the millionaire wanted, but I think it illustrates an important point. Uh, like the architect, most of us don't like admitting that we're wrong. Do you like admitting that you're wrong? I don't. I don't think many people do. There's something in us, our pride, that says we don't like admitting when we're wrong. And I would say even more than our dislike of admitting when we're wrong, I think we uh, even d- dislike more doing something about it, correcting our mistake. Such was the case for the nation of Israel in Amos' day. Uh, there's a chart that's behind me just to kind of catch us up on where we've been. In Amos chapter 1 and 2, we've seen the roar of judgment as God has pronounced judgment on eight nations leading up to the nation of Israel, which is the nation that Amos is preaching to. Last Sunday, we got into the reasons for judgment. And the first reason we saw uh, last Sunday was for materialism. Now, as we move our way into the reasons, we're going to see reason number two and reason number three. Uh, The second reason for God's coming judgment that Amos gives the nation of Israel is that they refused to repent. Like the architect, they refused to admit they were wrong, and then they refused to do something about it. The third reason we'll get into this morning is what I'll call injustice or legal injustice. So I hope you have your Bibles open, and let's take a look at reasons number two and number three out of five, which gives us uh, the reason for the pending judgment that God had pronounced. Uh, if you're taking down notes, jot this down. This is Amos's message, I believe, for us this morning and for the people of God. Reasons two and three combine to give us this message. This is the point that we're going to see in these second and third reasons. It's simply this. While refusal to repent brings discipline, repentance brings life. And so when we as God's people, when we refuse to confess our sin and to change our direction in life and to repent, God as our Heavenly Father will bring discipline as a good parent always does. However, when we repent, the result is life, physical life and spiritual life. So let's dive into Amos chapter 4. I trust that you're there. If you don't have your own Bible, it should be up on the screen. As we get into reason number two, we've seen the first reason for the coming judgment is materialism. And the second reason is that Israel, much like many of us at some point in time, we simply refuse to repent. Amos begins by listing in this chapter, chapter 4, two sins. He's going to give and he's going to talk just briefly. He's going to introduce two sins that Israel refused to repent from. Now the thrust of this chapter is he's going to be saying, listen, I gave you chance after chance and I wooed you to myself and you refused to repent. But he's going to start off the section just by giving a couple examples, right? So he's going to say, listen, these are just two things, tip of the iceberg, things that you refuse to repent from. The first one is injustice. And the second one is what we'll call religious hypocrisy. 
religious hypocrisy. So what he's going to do is he's going to introduce this idea of injustice. And then as we move into chapter 5, he's going to expand on that idea, and he's going to show us about all the injustice that was going on. But he's simply introducing it now in verses 1 through 3. So let's read as he begins this uh, short introduction on their refusal to repent for the injustice going on in the land. Let's read God's word together. Hear this word, you cows of Bashan on Mount Samaria. You women, uh uh-oh, you women who oppress the poor and crush the needy and say to your husbands, bring us some drinks. The sovereign Lord has sworn by his holiness, the time will surely come when you will be taken away with hooks the last of you with fish hooks. You will each go straight out through the breaches in the wall, and you will be cast out towards Harmon, declares the Lord. So you may be thinking in your mind, did the prophet of God, altogether inspired and authoritative, just call women cows? And what's the answer? Yes, he most certainly did. Now, men, just before you get any great ideas, okay, he's a prophet, you're not, okay? He can say those things, you cannot. So it's not recommended. However, God wanted to make a point. And so he speaks to the wealthy women, the wealthy wives in the nation of Israel. And yes, he calls them fat cows, He sure does, because like the cows found around Mount Samaria, they were lazy, and all they did was eat all the time. I want to show a picture here that I got from my professor in seminary, and he he told the story in class at how he was uh, in this region, right, on or near Mount Samaria, and they were driving, and there were a herd of cows on the road, so they had to stop there in Israel because these fat cows were in the road. So look at that big, fat cow. That is the image that the prophet invokes. He says, you women are just like fat cows. All you do is eat all day long, and then you eat some more. They were lazy. And why is it that they could enjoy wine all day long? Notice, it was the the wives who were saying, honey, get me a drink. Bring me something to drink. It's usually opposite in our culture, but the women of the day were so pampered. They were so spoiled that they said, to their husbands, bring me some wine. And what we know from the context is that they got this wine by oppressive means. That's why the prophet could say to the wives, even though they weren't directly doing it, you are the one oppressing the needy. You are the one crushing the poor. And as a result, as a result, God says that they too, these wealthy women, will be taken into exile using fish hooks. Now, I want to show you a second image. The second image is from uh, a, uh, they call it a relief, but they, uh, they took it, it's uh, an actual picture from uh, the, the, the Assyrian Empire of the day. And what you'll notice is the man on the left is the Assyrian ruler. Now, he's taking a rod, and he's poking out the eyes of one of his captors. That's not what I want to bring your attention to. Notice what he has in his other hand. He has a string, and at the end of that string is a what? 
is a hook. And notice where that hook is. It's in the, apparently, the lip. What we know, historically speaking, is that Assyria, when they took their enemies captive, was incredibly brutal. And one of the ways that they would take their exiled enemies away from their homelands is they would have a a chain. So think of a chain. And on the end of that chain were literal fish hooks. And what they would do is they would put that fish hook either in the lip of their captive or the cheek of their captive. Now imagine if you were in that position, would you uh, lag behind? No, you would not lag behind because there would be incredible pain if you didn't keep up the pace. And so what Amos says is he says, listen, you may enjoy your drink now, but God will lead you away with fish hooks. So he introduces the concept of the injustice going on in the land. More to come on that. The second sin that they refused to repent of was what I will call religious hypocrisy. And that's found in verses 4 and 5. Let's read that together. God says this. Now, I want you to hear the sarcasm that is in God's voice, and I'll try my best to do it. Go to Bethel. Go to Bethel and sin. Go to Gilgal and sin yet more. Bring your sacrifices every morning. Your tithes every three years. Burned leavened bread as a thank offering. And brag about your free will offerings. Boast about them, you Israelites. For this is what you love to do, declares the sovereign Lord. So with biting sarcasm, God mimics the call that the priest would give the nation of Israel to come into the temple and to come worship the Lord. He's using sarcasm and with this cynical spirit, he calls them to come not to worship, but to keep, keep on sinning in their hypocritical worship. Imagine this. If you happen to have kids and uh, they happen to go trick-or-treating this Halloween, they probably got candy. They probably got quite a bit of candy. Uh, And though our kids didn't get a whole ton, they probably got way more than they ever needed. Uh, And so I don't know if your kids are like mine, but they enjoy candy and they want more and more candy. So imagine this scenario. It's Halloween night. Your kids have gotten lots of candy and you say, okay, you can have five pieces of candy. And they eat five pieces of candy and then they begin to complain. We want more candy. We want to eat lots more candy. Oh, and they whine and they bellow and they bellyache. And what if you said this as a parent? Well, go on then. Why don't you eat that whole bag of candy? Why don't you just eat it until your tummy aches? See how you like it then. And what if they were to say, oh, great, mom, thanks a lot. And then then they go and they eat it all. Well, that's not what you meant, right? What were you doing? You were using sarcasm, right? You're saying, just go on. Just do it then. But that's not really what you want. God is not encouraging his people to sin in their relationship with him. He's using sarcasm. Now, what were they doing? What were they doing? Well, instead of giving a tithe, a tenth of their annual uh, crop every year, how how often were they doing it? Did you notice? Every three years. Oh, okay, so they're not following God's commands. Instead of every one, they're doing it every three. Instead of offering, what kind of bread were they offering? Leavened bread. Hmm. They were supposed to offer unleavened bread. And then when they would bring their voluntary offerings, what were they doing? Did they come humbly and give it quietly? No, 
Look what I did. Look at my sacrifice. Look at my offering. They were bragging about their religious performance when their heart was full of disobedience. It was religious hypocrisy. And what we're going to see as we move on and get into reason number four, Amos focuses in on this religious hypocrisy. But for now, he introduces these two sins. And his point, as we read in uh, verses 6 through 11, his point is this. These are just two examples, people of God, of your refusal to repent from these kind of things. Because what he says in verses 6 through 11 is God is going to list seven, count them as we read through it, seven, the number of completion or perfection, seven failed attempts of his own discipline, which he intended to bring the people back to him. He's going to list seven things that he did, which God promised he would do. Notice the chart behind me. We're just going to look at it briefly. But in in three places, Leviticus 26, Deuteronomy 28, and 1 Kings 8, what we see is that in the covenant, God said to his people, if you obey me, I'll bless you. If you disobey me, here are the things that I'm going to bring upon you so that you'll know that I'm not happy with you so that you'll turn and repent and be right with me. Now notice the, th- the, the seven things he's going to list here in Amos. Hunger, drought, mildew, locust, plagues, military uh, defeat, and utter devastation. The point is, is God's going to say, I brought these seven things into your life as a form of discipline, like a, a loving heavenly father disciplines his children so that they might be obedient and righteous. And time after time, you ignored my discipline. Now surely you don't have or have not had any children that ever ignored your discipline. Certainly not, certainly not. But God's people were like that. Let's read verses 6 through 11. I gave you empty stomachs in every city and lack of bread in every town, yet you have not returned to me, declares the Lord. Notice that repeated phrase. I also withheld rain from you when the harvest was still three months away. I sent rain in one town, but withheld it from another. One field had rain, another had nothing, and it dried up. People staggered from town to town for water, but didn't get enough to drink. Yet you have not returned to me, declares the Lord. Many times I struck your gardens and your vineyards, destroying them with blight and mildew. Locusts devoured your fig and your olive trees. What? Yet you have not returned to me, declares the Lord. I sent plagues among you as I did to Egypt. I killed your young men with the sword along with your captured horses. I filled your nostrils with the stench of your camps. Yet you have not returned to me, declares the Lord. I overthrew some of you as I overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. You were like a burning stick snatched from the fire. What? Yet you have not returned to me, declares the Lord. So seven things. He's saying, I'm trying to get your attention. I'm bringing discipline into your life because I want you to know I'm not pleased with you. You need to repent. But that did not work. And so in verses 12 and 13 to end the chapter, God says, I'm going to come in a a stronger way. If I haven't gotten your attention with these things, I'm going to get your attention by bringing you into exile. I'm going to show you my power. I'm going to personally reveal myself to you through my power, my sovereign rule over my creation. Notice these strong words in verses 12 through 13. Therefore, because you did not repent, this is what I will do to you, Israel. And because I will do this to you, Israel, Prepare to meet your God. Folks, let me ask you a question. 
When God says, prepare to meet your God, that's a scary thing, right? He who forms the mountains, who creates the winds, who reveals his thoughts to mankind, who turns dawn to darkness and treads on the heights of the earth, the Lord God of hosts, literally, is his name. So he says, we're going to have a face-to-face encounter, and it's not going to be good. So what do we see in chapter 4? May I suggest to you that chapter 4, Amos is saying this, refusal to repent. When God's people refuse to repent, it brings God's discipline. And we'll talk about what that looks like in our lives in just a second. But there's, there's more. That's the first half of his message, that refusal to repent brings discipline. But there's another side of the coin. And God wants to make that clear. And so as we move into chapter 5, God says, listen, while, while, di- while refusal to repent brings discipline, repentance, it brings life. When we turn from sin and toward to God, the result is only going to be good and it's only going to be life. Author James Dent in the uh, West Virginia Gazette once told a story about two fellows in a small West Virginia town and about how these two men uh, started a business together and they started a a butcher shop business. The story goes something like this. One time, after uh, a year or two of the men being in business, an evangelist came to town, brought in by one of the local churches, and one of the butchers went to the event and one of the butchers got saved, turned his life to Christ. So he was then persuaded uh, to tell his partner. And so he went back and told the fellow that he was in business with about, about his salvation and how God had saved him and, and begun a work of changing him. And yet day after day, he would share the gospel with his partner and the partner refused. And so after a while, um, he became a little frustrated with the man and he said, Charlie, why won't you trust in Christ? Why won't you be born again? Listen, Lester, the other butcher told him, if I get religion too, who's going to weigh the meat? So here's, here's the deal. Amos now is going to expand on the idea of, of this first unrepented sin. He's going to take the idea of injustice, this idea that they had unequal weights, the idea that in business and in life there was social and economic and even legal injustice going on, like at the butcher shop. He's going to expand on this idea that he introduced of social injustice that they failed to repent of in chapter 4. I just want to share with you, we're going to read the, the chapter, but I want to share with you just to highlight and to bring to your mind some of the social sins that were going on in the nation at that time. First of all, in verse 7, what we find out is that there were unjust infractions. That is, justice uh, was not sweet, but it was bitter. He's going to say, for those who are wronged in the nation, your justice is not sweet to them. There's no justice in the land. It's like wormwood. It's bitter. Instead of getting justice, there's injustice all the more. Verse 10, those who would tell the truth in the courts or who would stand up for the rights of the poor, they were hated in Israel. There was heavy rent being charged for working the land and bribes were being taken by judges for favorable decisions. Verse 12, the needy were turned away at the gate and there's just a litany of injustice going on in the land. But this is what I want you to listen for. As we read chapter five, listen to what God repeatedly says through the prophet. 
he repeatedly beckons his people to repent. And he uses these two phrases. He says, seek me and live. Seek me and live. One time he says, seek good and not evil. And so while he's going through this litany of injustice, repeatedly he's saying, turn from it. Repent. Come back to me. Seek me. And when you do, you will find life. So let's do this. Let's read all of Amos chapter 5 together. It says this, starting in verse 1. Hear this word, Israel, this lament I take up concerning you. He's playing like a, a person at a, at a funeral. What they would do is they would have funerals and they would sometimes hire people to sing songs of lament of, of, over the dead. And he's saying, I'm like one of those singers singing over you, O Israel. Verse 2, fallen is virgin Israel, never to rise again, deserted in her own land with no one to lift her up. This is what the sovereign Lord says to Israel. Your city that marches out a thousand strong will have only a hundred left. Your town that marches out a hundred strong will only have ten left. That's a 90% death rate in battle. Not good. Verse 4. This is what the Lord says to Israel. Seek me and live. Don't, go, don't seek Bethel. Don't go down to Gilgal. Do not journey to Beersheba, these places where idolatrous worship was going on. He says, don't, don't seek me there. For Gilgal will surely go into exile and Bethel will be reduced to nothing. Seek the Lord and live or he will sweep through the tribes of Joseph like a fire and it will devour them and Bethel will have no one to quench it. And he begins to list the social injustice. Verse 7, there are those who turn justice into bitterness and cast righteousness to the ground. He who made the Pleiades and the Orion, constellations in the, st- in the sky, who turns midnight into dawn and darkens day into night, who calls for the waters of the sea and pours them out over the face of the land, the Lord is his name. With a blinding flash, he destroys the stronghold and brings the fortified city to ruin. He says, listen, this is what's going to happen to you if you don't repent, if you don't seek me and live. Verse 10, there are those who hate the one who upholds justice in the court. Now that's opposite. Do we praise justices who are crooked and corrupt and take bribes? No, we don't. At least most of us don't, right? Um, But that's what they would do. If you were corrupt and crooked, they would praise you and Detest the one who tells the truth. You levy a straw tax on the poor and impose a tax on their grain. Therefore, though you have built stone mansions, you will not live in them. Though you have planted lush vineyards, you will not drink their wine. For I know how many are your offenses and how great are your sins. He goes on. There are those who oppress the innocent. They take bribes. They deprive the poor of justice in the courts. Therefore, the prudent keep quiet in such times, for the times are evil. He's saying, listen, it's so corrupt and so unjust that if someone was to go into the court and say, wait a minute, this is not right, uh, something bad would happen to them, right? Something really bad. Verse 14. Seek good, not evil, that you may live, then the Lord God Almighty will be with you just as you say he is. Hate evil, love good, maintain justice in the courts. Perhaps the Lord God Almighty will have mercy on the remnants of Joseph. He's saying, listen, 
If you turn, it's not too late. If you repent, it's not too late. Some of you may still live. Some of you still may endure the coming exile. Verse 16. Therefore, this is what the Lord, the Lord God Almighty says. There will be wailing in the streets and cries of anguish in every public square. The farmers will be summoned to weep and the mourners to wail. There will be wailing in all the vineyards, for I will pass through your midst, says the Lord. And so while recounting the injustice, notice repeatedly, seek me and live. Seek me and live. Seek good and not evil, and perhaps there will be life. And so this first half of chapter 5, it completes our message today. What was our message? What is Amos's message? While refusal to repent brings discipline, what does repentance bring? brings life. Repentance brings life. So in the closing moments, we have our message. This is what Amos is saying to God's people thousands of years ago, and this is what God is saying to us, to you and I today. The first thing that he says is that refusal to repent brings discipline. As God disciplined his people of old and hopes to bring about repentance, Hebrews chapter 12, verses 5 through 11 shows us that God still does that today. Hebrews 12, let's read it on the screen. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. Why? For the Lord disciplines the one he loves, and he chastens every son whom he receives. Verse 7. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which you have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and what? Live. For they disciplined us for a short time, as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good, that we may share in his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. Ask your kids about that. That's what they'll tell you. But later, it yields the the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Listen, in the Old Testament, God disciplined his people. In the New Testament, God disciplines his people It's a little trickier for us on this side of the cross because there is no list. God doesn't give us a list and say, if I uh, make your car uh, engine fall apart, then you know I'm disciplining you. If 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 your mortgage falls apart and you can't pay it, then I'm disciplining you. There's no list, right, in the New Testament. All we have is that God disciplines his children, but unlike the Old Testament, we don't have a list so that we can know specifically man, something's up. I'm not, I'm not right with God, right? So it's a little harder, but my thought is this. My thought is this. I think that God's fatherly discipline must be personally discerned. That is, we must discern it in our own lives, and the Spirit will show us when I think we're under the discipline of the Lord. And I think God can use a whole host of things to, to to get through to us. He listed these seven things for Israel. He said, I did this and this and this. I'm trying to get through to you. I think God can use a host of things. He can use a sermon uh, here from this pulpit or from the radio or TV. He can use your time and your daily devotionals as you're reading through scriptures and you read that scripture and you're like, oh, this one was for me today, right? He can use that. He can simply use the Holy Spirit 
convicting us, and we know in the moment, the Spirit is convicting me, and I need to not do this. I need to repent. Maybe it's a confrontation from a trusted friend or a spouse that God may use to lead us to repentance. And so, friends, I want to ask, is there something today that you're holding on to that God wants you to let go of? Maybe a sin that you've been harboring, hiding, Someone once said, and I love this quote, if we, put off repentant, if we put off repentance another day, we have a day more to repent of and a day less to repent in. Isn't that so good? The second lesson is this. Repentance brings life. What I want you to know is that for the life of the Christian, repentance is something that we must do all the time, daily, maybe even hourly, maybe even minutely, right? It's, it's the air that we breathe as Christians. And so it's not just something we do when we trust in Christ and we forget about this idea of turning from sin. Martin Luther, in the first of his 95 theses, which sparked the Protestant Reformation, said this, when the Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, he willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. To this John Piper, pastor up in Minneapolis, adds, all of the Christian life is repentance. Turning from sin and trusting in the good news that Jesus saves sinners are not merely a one-time inaugural experience, but the daily substance of Christianity. The gospel is for every day and for every moment. Repentance is to be the Christian's continual posture. I love that. So we're going to take communion here. And we're going to enter into a time of repentance. Let's practice this posture of repentance now as we begin to prepare for communion. In 1 Corinthians 11, Paul talks about how communion is to be preceded by a time of reflection and repentance. And he also says it's an opportunity for non-Christians to see the gospel in living color, that Jesus died for them, that his body was shed for for their sins, that his body was torn, that his blood was shed for them, and that they can then see this image, this living picture of the gospel, and turn and trust in Jesus Christ. And so I want to spend a few minutes practicing the posture of repentance, preparing to share and remembering what Christ has done for us and celebrating with joy that when we share in this, we're reminded that all of our sins, past, present, and future, through faith, personal trust in Christ, are forgiven And we can come joyfully to the table with humble and repentant hearts. So let's pray just for a moment. And then the guys in the back will start the music. Feel free to come and partake in communion. And then feel free to to leave quietly, uh, reflectively. And we'll see you next week. So let's pray. Father, would you prepare our hearts now to practice the posture of repentance for those of us who are living in blatant and flagrant sin as the nation of Israel was, may we now have such deep conviction that we would turn from our rebellion and may you as our Heavenly Father lead us to life, to spiritual life. Father, for those of us who uh, we don't harbor sin and yet we sin every day, may we be reminded that repentance is the continual posture of the Christian. Every day, every minute, we want to be in this posture. We thank you so very much for giving us life through shedding the blood of your son, Jesus. We remember him this morning in Jesus' name. Take a moment and come when you're ready.